Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, good morning. Am I on? Can y'all hear me? <clears throat> my allergies are doing something weird when we were singing. It was, I was getting this little <clears throat> thing in my throat, so bear with me. Wow. All right. Romans 12 and 13. That was a lot to cover this week. Um, But I hope and trust that you had a good time in the Word on your own this week and also just in your groups discussing um, all of these questions and uh, maybe seeing something in a new way, maybe um, having your toes stepped on a little bit, or like her discussion questions that you made some adjustments in your life, <laughs> which is confession and repentance, right? <laughs> um, but anyway, let's dive in. So um, we've seen in Romans that Paul uses this pattern of theology, starting with theology, and then, so we've seen that in chapters 1 through 11, and then from that theology moves doxology, which is what Rebecca took us through last week and um, at the end of chapter 11. And then that chapter ended with the words, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then she gave us just a little peek into this week and how doxology flows into commitment. And so chapter 12 begins with an appeal um, from from Paul, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's commitment, right? A living sacrifice of our own body. And that's the one that he's pleading with the believers in Rome to make. And so we see in the rest of chapter 12 and 13, and then some on through the to the end of the chapter, uh, Paul moves into what I'll just call Christian ethics, so ethical living. So we see theology to doxology to commitment to ethical living. So there's a lot here, and we do not have time to cover it all. So I want to really focus, believe it or not, on just two of those verses um, of chapter 12, mainly because I think if we don't understand those first two verses, if we don't get them right, then trying to live out the rest of, of the the book of Romans and and just our Christian uh, walk in general is going to be frustrating and defeating for us. And and we don't want that. And I found that as I worked through this scripture that I would find myself going, gosh, I got to do better at that. I need to do better at this. I've got to do better at that. Wow, I've really failed in that area. I've got to step it up over here. And so it was really easy for my, I don't know if you did the same thing, but my, my heart and my mind immediately went to all the, the things that I needed to try harder at, work harder at, do better. And I don't think that's what Paul is trying to tell us um, in these chapters. Um, I don't think he's presenting us with a moral checklist now. Like we've moved from this, now here's a moral checklist. Let's do all of these things just right. I want you to try really, really hard to do this. Um, but instead, I think that he is telling us as believers to, to check what we worship and and then why we worship, and to, to have our actions flow out of who we worship or what we worship, um, and then why we worship. So I want you to take a minute and think about that word worship. What comes to your mind when you hear that word? How would you define it? So when you picture worship, 
if you picture people standing and singing like we just did, I think that's where a lot of us go with our thoughts. Maybe you include the singing that you do in the shower or in the car. Maybe you worship there. Um, maybe you have a bigger picture of that that enlarges a little bit where you include the whole entire church service. And you, so the singing and the preaching of the word is a worship service. Um, maybe when we gather together here on Thursday mornings, maybe this is what comes to your mind, the worship that happens as we gather together as believers um, and we study the word. And I think that worship is a word that we use in our church vocabulary often, but possibly don't have a complete understanding of what it is beyond this gathering of a body of believers. And I think it really stood out to me here in this scripture um, because Paul says this is worship. And so what does he say is worship? Paul says that presenting our bodies to God as a living sacrifice is worship. He uses some words that would definitely have made his Jewish believers, um, the ones who were listening, think of the Old Testament temple. Words like present, sacrifice, and worship. Their minds might immediately go back to the old sacrificial system of worship, where there were prescribed methods for offering a sacrifice. When more than one kind of offering was going to be presented by a family or a person, the procedure was you offer the sin offering first to take care of the sin, and then the burnt offering. So, and then there were many other types of offerings too. I think there were five total. But which type of sacrifice or offering is Paul most likely talking about in verse one? Because knowing that helps us understand better what he is trying to say. Since Christ had already made and, and had already fulfilled the atoning sacrifice for sin once and for all, then the sin offering is not what he's referencing here. Instead, he is referencing probably the whole burnt offering, which would be a voluntary act of worship, where the entire sacrifice of an unblemished bull or a ram or a male bird would be totally consumed by fire. There would be nothing left of it. And this act of worship would be an expression of devotion, commitment, and complete surrender to God. So just as the whole burnt offering was voluntary, so too is the sacrifice that's mentioned in verse 1. It involves our will. We are told to present our bodies. And the word present means to bring or to lead. So just like the worshipers of the Old Testament who would lead their animal to the altar... It is our responsibility now to bring the sacrifice of our whole self to God. In Romans 6, if you remember, we were told to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul is elaborating on that here and saying not only are we presenting our bodies um, so that they can be used as instruments of righteousness, but that it is worship. In a sense, we are the offerers of the sacrifice and we are the offering. So Paul says that our sacrifice is holy and is acceptable to God. So how can this be? Because we're sinners. How can we be the unblemished offering? It is only by the mercies of God that this is possible. It is because of Christ that I can present myself before God as a sacrifice and actually be acceptable. Presenting myself as a sacrifice based on my own works and not by faith um, in the redemptive work of Christ in my life would not be acceptable to God. The Jewish believers would have most likely thought back to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, Abel brought the firstborn of the flock. 
And God did not look with favor on Cain's offering, but he did on Abel's. Abel's was acceptable and Cain's was not. So why is that? Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It is always by faith that sacrifices are accepted by God. By faith, we lay ourselves down, trusting that the work of Christ makes us holy and acceptable. This verse also says that our worship is spiritual. It uses that word, spiritual, which translates, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, logikos in the Greek, which means logical or rational. So why would Paul say it is logical for us to present our bodies to God? What is logical about that? Well, it flows straight from everything that Paul um, has outlined in chapters 1 through 11. His theology, which is, and our theology, which is why he begins this section of scripture with therefore. Actually, in some versions, it begins with therefore. And I don't know if you've ever heard, but if there's a therefore, ask what is it there for? So it causes you to look back and see what is it talking about. But not just what is it talking about, what is it based on? What is it rooted in? So he is basically saying, look back at the mercies of God that you've experienced. All that I've been reminding you of, keep those mercies in view. Don't forget them. Don't forget God's wrath, his righteousness, his judgment. Don't forget your sin and hopelessness. Don't forget Christ's death and resurrection. Don't forget justification by faith alone. Don't forget the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Don't forget God's sovereignty and election. Keep your eyes on his tender mercies. Our commitment is based on the mercies of God. Any other foundation for our commitment to God is worthless and it's powerless. Knowing what God has done for us through Christ should prompt us to respond with a sacrificial offering of our bodies back to him. It doesn't make sense to do anything less than that. It is logical worship. The greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment should be. So this call to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice is not just for Paul. It's not just for the church at Rome or for missionaries or clergy or Tim, or Dave, or Chase, or Amy. It's for all of us. It is a call of surrender and total devotion to every single follower of Christ. It's an individual call to each and every one of us who has experienced the mercies of God. Sam Shoemaker, who was a a priest that was associated with Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, to be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. So, as we grow in the knowledge of God's mercy, we should be growing in our commitment to Christ. We should look more committed at 30 than we did at 13, and then even more at 50, 60, 70, 80. According to verse 1, our sacrifice of worship is to be living, is a living sacrifice. Just like the animals were right up until they got to the offering, right? Where they were then slaughtered and totally consumed by fire. But we continue to live. This means the sacrifice of our body is ongoing. It doesn't end. We've been brought from death to life and our worship is in the very living of our lives. Often we think of giving a sacrifice as losing something, right? When we talk about the word, what did you sacrifice? You're giving up something. But we're actually, in this case, expressing something. Not giving up, but expressing something. And what we're expressing is our total devotion commitment and complete surrender to God. We are expressing that he is Lord of our lives. 
Now, it took me many years to understand the lordship of Christ in my life. Um, the summer I turned eight years old, my little home church in Alabama held a week-long revival service, which, of course, we probably had done many, many times before, and I had been many times before, maybe sleeping on the back pew, though. Um, but this week was different, because this week, that week of revival, I actually paid attention, and I heard the message, um, and I felt like the, it was for me, and I could feel the Holy Spirit really just awakening something inside of me. And so sitting in that pew and hearing the gospel, not for the first time, but for the first time with ears that could hear and eyes that could see, um, I learned of the wrath of God against me because that's what revivals were. <laughs> that's what we did a lot back then. Um, I learned of the wrath of God against my sinful self, and I was under deep conviction and no small amount of fear. Um, and I knew I was sinful, but I just tried really hard to keep it under wraps, which in my childish mind was okay. As long as I look good on the outside, then it was all good, right? You don't get found out, then it's fine. So that was my thinking at that point. But sitting there in that revival service um, with my sinfulness for the first time really weighing down on me, I decided on that final night, as they sang, just as I am, or maybe it was, I surrender. I surrender all. I walked down the aisle and I accepted the payment for my sin that Christ had made on my behalf. And I said that I wanted to live in heaven with him when I died and I wanted to be part of his family. And then later I was baptized um, and declared my faith publicly then as well. However, at this point in my life, and, and some of you may share this same type of testimony, more of like a progressive sort of thing, but at that point in my life, I really knew nothing personally of this surrendered life of sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans 12. It wasn't until many years later, and honestly now I can't even really remember the setting of it. I think it was like at a youth camp or something, but I remember sitting in a small group and having someone show us a circle. And in that circle was a throne. You've probably, some of you may have seen this before. And around the circle that represented our life. And so all around the circle were all these little dots that represented just areas of your life, relationships, school, whatever. Um, and there's this throne in the middle of it. And I remember the leader asking, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? Is he the one directing your life? Is he Lord? Or is he just one of the many points on the circle? Um, and this was something I'd never considered before. I, I'd never really thought of my life as having a throne that someone was sitting on. And it was very clear to me that I was still the ruler of my life. And the Lord began a work in me then to show me that I could not separate um, his lordship in my life from his saving work in my life. If he is savior, then he must be Lord. So Jesus said in Luke 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is a daily denial of self. It is a daily act of walking to the altar of sacrifice to lay down our lives to be used by Christ. One analogy I've heard um, that I thought was pretty good um, is that think of your life as like a blank sheet of paper that you hand to God every day with your name signed at the bottom. And I thought, well, that's pretty powerful imagery there that we say, um, 
God, you write on that paper which you would have me to do today, and I have already signed my name to it. But how are we to know what it is that he wants us to do? Because that's not actually how it works, is it? <laughs> um, we don't just hand it over and he writes out what we do. We, we have to be in communion with him so that we know. So that's the age-old age question of all followers of Christ, particularly when they're in college, right? What is God's will for my life? Paul says it starts first by viewing God's mercies. And then in a sacrificial act of worship, laying down our lives to be used by him. In verse 2, he continues his appeal and he tells us how to know God's will. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this verse has two commands in it. There's a negative one and a positive one. And the first one is negative. It says, do not be conformed to this world or um, in other, other translations to this age that you live in. So we're called not to, not to be conformed to the kind of godless thinking that characterizes people who have no knowledge of the eternal God, like we saw in Romans 1. This thinking and worldview stands in complete opposition to the will of God. Let me just say that again. The thinking of the world stands in complete opposition to the will of God. We've been redeemed from that kind of thinking. We are to reject the pattern of thinking and behaving that is in this world so that we can discern and embrace God's will, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. John Murray says, conformity to this age is to be wrapped up in the things that are temporary to have all of our thoughts oriented to that which is seen or temporal. If all our calculations, plans, ambitions are determined by what falls within life here, then we are children of this age. The pull to conform to the world's thinking can be glaringly obvious, can it? And that's the ones we usually talk about. Or it can be oh so subtle. And those are the ones that maybe we don't talk about so much. <laughs> the subtle pressures are probably what we deal with more. I've often compared that subtle drifting away from God, what God values toward the world's values to what happens when you go to the beach. So I want you to picture this with me, but you can't picture Galveston. You have to picture, you have to picture the beaches of maybe Alabama or Florida on that side of the Gulf. Um, okay, so picture the beach. I want you to be with me here. So you walk out onto white sand, and you're carrying all of your stuff. <laughs> and then for me, this would be like a beach bag, maybe one of those fold-up chairs, and then one of those like $2 inflatable rafts or floats. I don't know what you call them. But anyway, the ones that are like about the width of your body and then with a little pillow up at the top. So you've got one of those, and you put all your stuff down on the sand, and you head out into the waves with your little float, because you want to relax for a little bit. And you, um, you maybe even drift off to sleep for a little while because it's so relaxing. And then finally you decide, you know, starting to feel like I'm getting a little burn. I'm going to go back in, get some more sunscreen. So you look up to kind of get your bearings. And where do you look? Straight in front of you, right? Because that's where you put your stuff. But it's not there anymore. It's way over there. And then you realize nobody moved your stuff. You have been the one that has been drifting. So I, to me, I feel like that is part of what Paul is warning us against. You can't just passively float along in the world 
and not expect to drift away from God's will because the pull of the world to conform to its ways is always there. And sometimes it is very, very subtle. I saw this particularly in my parenting of teenagers. Um, this was just the one, I'm, it's all through my life, I'm sure, but this was the one that came to my mind when I was preparing this. I would find myself talking to my teenagers more about GPAs, sports accomplishments, college entrance exams, where they were going to live, whatever. I would find myself talking more about that than maybe how they were growing spiritually or what God was teaching them. I would find myself giving them um, advice about priorities and time management that mirrored the values of this world. I'm always grateful for the Spirit's conviction, especially when it comes to parenting. Because I think we all can agree that it's really easy for the world's values to slip into our thinking and then come out in our words. And we can literally lead our children away from the Lord in doing that. So that's Paul's warning to us. Do not be conformed to this world. So the answer to how can we keep from doing that is found in the positive command in verse 2. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So that word transformed literally means to be changed into another form, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. And actually, I don't have this in my notes, but it is the same word that was used in the transfiguration of Christ, um, which is pretty amazing. So what is this other form that we're being um, transformed into or changed into? So 2 Corinthians 3.18 answers that question for us. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. And how is that transforming happening? By the renewing of our minds. I think that scripture can also answer the question of how do we renew our minds so we can be transformed. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Our part of this transformation requires us to keep God's mercies in view. That means we have to be in God's word. We have to be preaching the gospel to ourselves constantly. We have to be meditating on the truth of God's word, not conforming to the thinking and patterns of this world, not allowing ourselves to get squeezed into the mold of the world's ways, while simultaneously the Spirit is working to transform us by renewing our minds. The Spirit uses the word of God and prayer to work this transformation in us. So we have to daily, constantly be taking in God's word and in prayer. So why is it important that I be transformed? The end of verse 2 tells us that, so that I can know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Only a renewed mind can know the will of God. Then when I offer my body daily to be used for his purposes, I will know what his will is. I think my favorite verses in all of scripture, which was really funny because Kitty brought them up at our table this morning, um, are Philippians 2, 5 through 8. These verses give us a glimpse of the form we are being changed into which is the image of Christ. And it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, the Spirit is going to work in us to transform us into the image of Christ. What I just read. <laughs> it is an image of humility, sacrificial living, extreme and radical love, honoring others above self, obedience, and submission to God. God is working through the Spirit to make his desires become our desires. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I misunderstood this verse for years. I thought it meant to be happy in the Lord, and he would give me what I wanted. But the word delight actually means to be soft. And so that takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? So be soft in the Lord, in his hands. Don't work against him as he's working in you. Let him do his shaping and molding, and then he will put his desires into your heart, and he will give you the strength to do those things. The rest of chapter 12 and 13 are Paul's instructions for Christian living. Paul doesn't pull these ethics out of thin air. They are the very essence of who Christ is. They are the gospel lived out in our lives. They are the teachings of Jesus, and they are the way he lived his life. And they are pretty straightforward, I think. And not difficult to understand, actually, that they are difficult to live if we try to do it in our own strength. Only a regenerated, born-again, new creation in Christ can hope to live that way. But even then, we can only do it as we present our whole selves to God as a sacrifice and allow the Spirit to transform us by renewing our minds and making us day by day, moment by moment, more and more like Christ. It is then that we can allow ourselves to be used by God to literally show his mercy to those around us. That's what the rest of the chapter was about, right? Showing the mercies of God to the people in our lives. And that is worship. So our daily living becomes worship. We worship when we serve our families, when we, get, when we give to someone who is in need, when we genuinely love those around us by putting their needs above our own when we choose to not have the last word and to seek harmony instead, when we use the spiritual gifts God has given us to serve in our church and in our community, when we do laundry, change a diaper, cook a meal, serve at Hope Pregnancy Center, CTLC, Foster Love Bell County, um, gather things to sell at the mission's garage sale, when we forgive someone who hurt us or ask for forgiveness, when we open our homes to others, when we're law-abiding citizens who pay taxes, when we seek to live peacefully with those around us, all of this then becomes worship. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word um, that you use to, to transform us, Lord. I pray um, that we would be um, just students of your word, Lord, that we would continue just to, to dig deeply and knowing, Lord, that we meet you there, that you meet us there, and that we can know you better and love you more and um, Lord that you are at work transforming us day by day by day and Lord help us not to um, desire the things of this world um, Lord but that we would desire you and that we would treasure you above all things and then we would then be a light for you in this dark world as we go out and are vessels of mercy um, that can be used by you to um, to point others to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Thank you, Shelly. Guys, we have one more week, so I want to encourage you to, to dig deep and to finish well, finish strong, and um, I'll see you next week.